0: Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, that's our text this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open that up. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you there. We would encourage you to grab a copy of that. And if you indeed don't own a copy of a Bible, take that home with you. We'd love to put a copy of God's Word in your hand. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is our text this morning. The title of the message is Prayer and the Goodness of God. Prayer and the Goodness of God. We encourage you to stand this morning as we turn our attention to our text. This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, and these are the words that he pens. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask of him? Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever you may be seated two main points on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes you'll always listen better if you do we'll have some subpoints as we journey together point number 1 is this god promises to answer his children's prayers and you say yes eric i know that that's christianity 101 and it's exactly what we needed to be reminded of is that our God promises to answer the prayers of his children. Let me direct you back. Look at your Bible, verses 7 and 8. Jesus instructs us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. There are great and glorious and golden promises contained in those two verses, friends. God promises to answer the prayers of his children. When you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong, and that he can do all that he pleases, and that he is infinitely righteous, so that all he does is always right, and that he is infinitely good, so that everything that he does is subsequently perfectly good. And that he is infinitely wise. That he always knows what is perfectly right and good. And that he is infinitely loving. So that in all his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful. When you stop to consider how infinitely wise God is, how infinitely good God is, how infinitely strong God is, how infinitely perfect God is, and then you consider His invitation here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 to come to Him and pray, that is unimaginably wonderful brothers and sisters. This is the second time in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're paying attention as we're studying, we've been uh, working our way systematically through the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, if you haven't been with us. But this is the second time in those three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus addresses the issue of prayer. And I would submit to you that it's safe to say that when Jesus repeats himself. Or when Jesus expounds upon a particular subject with which he has already spoken, we would do very well to listen attentively. This is the second time that Jesus takes up the issue or takes up the matter of prayer. You can remember back to Matthew chapter 6. As a matter of fact, why don't you probably turn the page back there and just glance for a moment. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the first time Jesus spoke about prayer. And there in those verses, Jesus gave us, gave his disciples a model prayer. He begins his teaching with the reminder of his sovereignty. If you back up and look at chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Oh, isn't that wonderful, friends? He knows our needs from afar before they ever roll off our tongue. While there's still yet a thought in our mind, yet even before he knew them exhaustively, our father knows what we need. And then he beckons us, come. There in the text there, he gives us a model prayer. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can remember back when we studied those verses, that, that is transcendent language. In other words, the first thing that Jesus wants us to know when we approach him is that he is big. He's transcendent. He is the one who resides in heaven. Such... We are to continue praying, your kingdom come, O king, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. You see, in chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. The first time Jesus takes up the matter of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he's instructing his disciples and subsequently us how we ought to pray. In the text before us this morning, you can go ahead and turn back to chapter 7 there. Jesus assures us that God not only welcomes our prayer, but that he answers our prayer. He instructs us first how we ought to pray. Then he encourages us with the fact that God welcomes our prayer. Not only does he welcome it, he answers his children's prayer prayers. Thus, we are encouraged to come to him continuously, as we'll see in the text, and confidently. How do you approach God in prayer? Do you approach him continuously and confidently? Three things I want to note there on your outline. When we come to the Lord in prayer, we should come asking biblically. Asking biblically. Jesus says, ask and then seek, and then knock, we should ask biblically. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean two things by that. I mean that we should ask with the right posture, but secondly, we should ask for the right things. I think that's at least by and large what it means to ask biblically. Jesus entreats us, ask, and it will be given to you. Well, how are we to ask We're to ask with the right posture. Let me say just a few things about that this morning. When we approach God, we should approach Him with the posture of humility and faith. Much more could be said about that, but nothing less can be said. We must approach Him with a posture of humility and faith. We're not to come demanding, but neither are we to come doubting that He hears us, doubting that He'll answer us. James, in James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, reminds us, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave that is driven and tossed in the sea, for that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We're to come to God in the right posture, in humility and faith, not demanding and not doubting, because the one who doubts must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. So with the right posture, first of all. Secondly, we're to come asking for the right things. Asking biblically means asking for the right things. It's very, very important for us to note that Jesus' entreaty for us to pray here in Matthew chapter 7 is not in any way a blank check. It's not a blank check. Uh, for which we may write in anything we might wish. These verses must be interpreted within the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount and within the broader context of the entire teaching of the Bible. Remember that a text without a context is a pretext. I'll tell you that many, many false doctrines, many, many false teachings, many, many heresies have been born... From the seed of taking a text out of its context. And then you have pretext. And if you build everything on a pretext, it will fall. It will fall. A text without a context is a pretext. And so isolating these verses from their setting in the Sermon on the Mount is deadly. And so therefore, what might seem like an unqualified promise when when Jesus tells us here, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, We, we should not look at that and think that that is an unqualified promise there. It is absolutely qualified. It's restricted not only by the context of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but on the rest of the Bible's teaching. And so here's what I mean by that. When Jesus says, ask, And it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. We ought to interpret that as meaning, seek the very things that Jesus has been laboring to encourage us to seek in the Sermon on the Mount. So turn back to chapter 5 for just a moment. Look at the Beatitudes. Here are the things that Jesus wants us to seek. Here are the things that Jesus uh, wants us to ask for. Here are the things that Jesus wants us to knock at the throne room's door for. How about poverty of spirit? That we would understand our brokenness, our bankruptness, apart from the goodness and the grace of God. How about that heart that's broken for its sin, that mourns over its sin? How about for meekness? How about a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? How about a merciful heart? How about, how about purity of heart? How about that I might be a peacemaker? How about that I might be light and salt? How about that I might not respond in a vindictive way when someone crosses my path, but I'd be able to control my anger? That's what meekness is, by the way. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is power under control. Remember? Jesus wants us to seek and to ask and to knock that we might not be given over to fleshly lusts. That we might think rightly about marriage. That we might understand that our word needs to mean something. When God spoke, he spoke with meaning in his words. I think about Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You know that the scripture doesn't answer that question? You know why? Because the answer is emphatically implied. God never speaks and then not acts. He never promises and then not fulfills. Okay? And so we, likewise, ought not make oaths that we don't keep. God, help me to do that. Help me to remember to ask you for that. Help me to remember to seek that grace from you, to be obedient to that very call. How about loving my enemies? How much are we asking God for grace and help in our time of need there? Are we banging at the door of the throne room that we might love our enemies better, more Christ-like? How about laying up treasures in heaven, being able to clearly discern those things which are fading? Remember, if it rots, rusts, collects dust, or dies, don't put your hope in it. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Take a look around you. Everything you see, every, every material item in here, stays here. You can't take any of it? God, help me. Hel- help me to discern. Help me to understand that. How about how we deal with anxiety and worry? God, help me there. That part of my heart that is oftentimes given to a quick judgment of others, that critical, hypercritical spirit, God, help me, help me to quell that, that I might please you. These are the things for which Jesus, if we put these verses in their proper context, is calling us to pray for. These are the things that Jesus is asking us to ask for, that he's encouraging us to seek for, that he's encouraging us to knock for. Now, of course, we take this verse and we place it in the context of the rest of God's revealed word, the rest of the Bible, I'm just simply saying that this is not a blank check. We cannot pull it out of its immediate context or the broader context of God's word and impose upon it a meaning which Jesus never instructed us to impose upon it. We are to ask for the right things. John tells us this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, this is the confidence. You want confidence in your prayers? You want confidence that God hears and God will answer? Well, John tells us this is the confidence we have in approaching him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know we have that which we asked of him. You see, that qualifies the asking. We must ask according to his will. Well, then we must know his will, right? Right? We must know God's word. We must be memorizing it and meditating on it, churning it over and over and over and over again in our hearts and minds, praying it, singing it, sharing it, studying it, writing it. Friends, how are we doing there? If we want to pray God's will and thus be assured that he hears and will answer, then we must know God's will. Unfortunately, some of us Some of us will go home this afternoon and we'll put our Bible on a nightstand, we'll put our Bible on a table, and we will pick it up next Sunday morning and you could blow a thin film of dust off of it because it will not have been touched within the last 168 hours. And then we wonder, why do I feel like my prayers aren't answered? Well, do we know God's will to begin with? Do we know God's revealed word? We must know God's will uh, in order to pray God's will. And the prayer that is according to God's will is always heard and always answered. So we must pray for the right things. I'd encourage you to start right there at the Beatitudes. Start right there and ask that God be developing those, those character traits, those kingdom qualities in your heart. You see what God might not do. You see how God might not change your heart. I want you to notice that there's an intentional ascending order to Jesus' teaching here on prayer. First, Jesus says, ask. And asking applies that we acknowledge that there's a conscious need, right? If I'm asking for something, then I'm acknowledging a conscious need for something. It suggests a humility in asking as well because the word ask here in the original language was oftentimes or commonly used to refer of asking from a superior. There's a humility involved here. Asking implies a conscious need, and it implies humility. And then second, that we would seek. Seeking involves asking, but it adds action. You catch that? Seeking involves asking, but it adds to the equation action. The idea here is not merely to express our need, but to get up and look around for it. It involves effort. Okay there's an asking and then there's a seeking and then third there is a knocking which includes asking plus acting plus persevering plus a stick-to-itiveness. we say it like this keep on keeping on don't toss the towel in you see the ascending order there we're to ask in prayer we have a need i'm consciously expressing it i'm doing it in humility But then we begin to seek. There is some effort on our part that we would get up and we would look around to have the need met. And then third, knocking, which implies persevering. It's like someone who keeps pounding on a closed door. So first, we must act biblically. Let's continue this thought here of perseverance, though. That's B on your outline. We must ask persistently, not only biblically, right posture, right things, that we're asking for, but we must ask persistently. It's important that we know that Jesus isn't making suggestions here, by the way. When Jesus calls us to ask and to seek and to knock, each of these are imperatives in the original language. In the original Koine Greek, which is what your New Testament is written in, ask, seek, and knock are written as imperatives. That simply means they're commands. They're not suggestions. But in the Greek, and I don't want your eyes to roll here, just track with me for a second here, in the Greek, there's two types of imperatives. There are what we call, you don't need to write this down, but there are errorist imperatives and there are present imperatives. Here is the difference here. An errorist imperative communicates a simple but a direct command, such as stop at stop signs, okay? Pay your bills. That's an errorist imperative. It's a simple but direct command. What we see here in the text when we read ask, seek, and knock is a present imperative. Simply means this. It means that it's a continuous action. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. It's What it means that it is a present tense imperative here in the text. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And it's a command that is to continue. A, a, a continuous action here is what Jesus is teaching us. We're to keep on asking God. We're to keep on seeking his will. We're to keep on knocking at the throne room door. And friends, let me, let me tell you, if you haven't already learned, this requires perseverance. This requires stamina. This requires determination. This requires stick This requires steadfastness and diligence and tenacity. If prayer were easy, more Christians would be doing it. It's those who keep on asking and those who keep on seeking that find. God opens the door to those who keep on knocking. As a matter of fact, in Luke's gospel, uh, just before this same call to prayer uh, is is written. So the same the same text here is in Luke's gospel, but just before it, Luke writes these words, where he is uh, he is pinning Jesus, illustrating a story about persistence. Just listen here. This is what Jesus teaches. And he said to his disciples, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. You can imagine if you get the, on your door at 11 o'clock, and the neighbor wants some bread. Okay? That's the story. Wants some bread. And this is what he hollers back from inside his home. Okay? Don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus goes on and he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his perseverance, because of the perseverance of the one knocking, because he won't seem to go away. It's like, I know you're in there, I know you can hear me, because of the persistence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. That is the illustration that precedes the asking and the seeking and the knocking teaching in Luke's gospel. We're to ask persistently. And so you ask yourself, why do some prayers, even when I ask diligently and persistently and even when I seek diligently and persistently, and even when I knock diligently and persistently, why does it seem as though some prayers are answered immediately while others seem to go long periods of time before there is any clear answer? Why is that? You ready for my answer? I'm not sovereign. I, I wouldn't presume to be able to tell you why in God's wisdom he chooses to answer some prayer More quickly than others. And I think it would be presumptuous for us to ask, but he does tell us something here about asking persistently, about being diligent, about continuing to knock, and about about how the person who's in the house hears that and comes to the door more quickly because of the persistence. Jesus is giving the illustration here because he's relating the illustration back to how God works. But I'm not sovereign. And so I don't know why some prayers seem to receive an immediate answer while others seem to go long periods of time before there is a clear answer. But this much is certain. If we keep on asking, if we keep on seeking His will, and if we keep on knocking at the throne room door, sooner or later the door will be opened to us. You know how I know that? It's in writing. It's in writing. You know, oftentimes we... Somebody tells us something and we we wonder, is it true or are they going to make good on their word? And so we say, would you put that in writing for me? I have it if I need it. might stick it in a file folder if I ever have to access that. I just know that you've said this to me. know that you've made this particular promise to me and I want to be able to hold you to it. But we don't have to hold God to anything. He holds himself to his own standard, but yet he condescends himself to give it to us still in writing. And He tells us, those who ask will receive, and those who seek will find, and those who knock, to them the door will be opened. In His own sovereign timing, okay, in His own sovereign timing, friends. Divine delays. When when God seems to not answer your prayers quickly, we might call that a divine delay. And when we experience divine delays, that does not in any way indicate reluctance on God's part, okay? Just because there's a period of time that passes between the time you ask and the time that God answers, that does not necessarily reveal reluctance on God's part. Now, again, I'm making some assumptions here. I'm assuming that we're praying according to God's will, right? Okay, we're, we're not writing the blank check prayers, We're we're, we're, we're praying according to God's will here. But just because time passes, just because there is a season that seems to lapse between ask and answer, does not mean or does not indicate reluctance on God's part. It may be very well that God wants to use this waiting time to help you learn patience. To help you learn patience. You see, God will sometimes put the intensity of our desires to test to cause us to look more like Jesus? In other words, I hear you, child. And not only do I hear you, but I hear simultaneously the prayer of all my children across the entire world, spoken to me in every different language and dialect. I hear it all. I miss not a word. I hear it. But I'm going to delay because it's better for you I'm going to use that delay to help conform you into the image of Jesus. But don't stop asking, don't stop seeking, and don't stop knocking. You got it, friends? God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, told the exiles in Babylon, you'll seek me when you find me, when you seek me with your what? With your whole heart. Yeah, You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Remember, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And so, friends, let me ask you this question. Do you pray persistently? Do you pray persistently? I think there are many reasons that we oftentimes fail in the area of persistent prayer. Let me just briefly mention a few. These are extra, okay? Aren't on your outline. You can jot them down if you want to. Let me give you just a few reasons that I think we oftentimes fail in the area of persistent prayer. First of all, I think we fall into the lie of fatalism. It's just a big way of saying we actually, in our sinful, hard-heartedness, wonder if our prayers will really make any difference. I mean, God's going to do what God's going to do, right? He's the sovereign of the universe. He sits on the throne. He does what he wants to do. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does what pleases him. And so what difference do my prayers make? Friends, we call that fatalism. Just kind of tossing the towel in and saying, uh, it doesn't really matter. No, God does have a sovereign prerogative. God does have a predetermined, before the foundation of the world will. But do you know that God uses means to accomplish his will? Here's what I mean by that. God has a will. And he uses your prayers and my prayers to bring that will into its present tense fruition. Okay? Your prayers do make a difference. Your prayers do matter. Or else Jesus would not have instructed us to pray persistently and continually. Okay, don't be given over to fatalism. It doesn't matter. God's going to do what God's going to do. Okay? But neither should you be given over to mysticism. So fatalism, not a good place to park. Neither is mysticism. And here's what I mean by that. I mean that, that little voice that we hear in our minds sometimes that says, if you don't pray the right way, Or if you don't pray the right words, God's not going to answer. That's mysticism, friends. Nothing could be farther from the truth, okay? We're not offering up some magic spell to a genie somewhere, okay? Don't be given over to mysticism. You don't need to be fearful that you might not pray in the, quote, right way or say, quote, the right words. Now, having said that, the more you read your Bible, the more biblically you'll pray input equals output right the more you read your bible the more you study your bible the more biblically you will pray third and lastly here is narcissism it's just another way of saying pride we think we can do on our own what only god can do in and through us and so we don't pray we don't see our need for prayer right we can tackle this we can handle it all by myself Every single one of you that are parents have had those moments where your little ones look at you and say, I do it. I do it, Daddy. No, you don't. We think it doesn't matter, fatalism. We think we have to pray in the right way, mysticism. And we think that we can do everything that only God can do in and through us on our own. That's narcissism. It's pride. Arrogance. Many of you are well acquainted with these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Hear this, my friends. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry. Finish the sentence. Everything to God in prayer. Are you persistent in your prayers? James tells us, you have not why. Because you ask not. Let me submit to you, friends, that God is more eager to answer your prayers than you even are to pray. He is more eager to answer your prayers than you and I are to even pray. See on your outline there is to ask confidently. To ask confidently. We want to ask biblically. That's right posture, right things. We want to ask persistently. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And we want to ask confidently. Let me remind you again of 1 John 5, 14 and 15. John writes, this is the confidence. What a wonderful, refreshing word that is. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know we have that which we have asked of him. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews four sixteen: Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Confidence. We have confidence in approaching the throne room of God. We dare not approach the throne room of God in our own flesh, but covered in the blood of Christ, covered in his perfect, spotless, blameless righteousness, we can come with confidence. We can ask confidently. I want you to see here, just glance back at these verses. Look at verses 7 through 11. That's our text again. If you survey the text, God makes seven confidence-stirring promises. You don't necessarily need to write these down, but if you're a Bible writer or a Bible marker or circler or, or noter or starer or parentheses-er, in some way, you might want to take note of these, okay? Seven confidence-stirring promises. Look at, look at verse 7 here. Ask, here's the promise, and it will be given to you. Seek, and here's the promise, and you will find. Knock, and the following promise, and it will be opened to you. Look at verse 8. For everyone who asks, here's the promise, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the promise is, it will be opened. And then look at verse 11. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him seven confidence stirring promises from our word from god's word okay god promises to answer the prayers of his children when they are prayed in accordance with his will get well acquainted with god's word and you'll be well acquainted with god's will number two on your outline is this god is an infinitely good father God is an infinitely good father. You say, yes, Eric, I know that, and I'll remind you that you'll walk right out those double doors today, and it will probably not be before you exit the parking lot that you will forget it. God is an infinitely good father. Let me direct your attention to verses 9 through 11. Look at your Bible. Jesus says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you who ask of him? Jesus makes an argument here. Jesus was a masterful teacher. And he uses an argument here by way of analogy. And the analogy is from lesser to greater. He says, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts know how to take good care of your children, how much more, from lesser to greater, how much more your Father in heaven will he give good gifts to those who ask of him. Let me just make an observation here. If you who are, what? Evil. We oftentimes don't like to think of ourselves in that light, right? Right? We oftentimes like to think of ourselves as, as bright and shining do gooders, if you will. But that's not what Jesus says about us here. He says, if you who are evil, I mean, there's a doctrine packed in that one word there. It's the doctrine of total depravity. Okay? Track with me for a second here. Total depravity does not mean that we are as evil or as corrupt or as vile or as sinful as we could be. God in his goodness and God in his mercy and God in his grace restrains men and restrains women from being as evil and wicked and vile and sinful as they could be. We call that God's common grace. Okay? That's why there's not anarchy in the world. Because God is is kind and and benevolent towards all he has made. And so the doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that we are as evil or vile or sinful as we could be. It simply means this. It means that every human faculty, that is your will, that is your desires, that is your motives, that is your actions, that is your speech, that is your thoughts, and mine as well, are all tainted by or marred with sin. So Jesus looks at us and he says, if you, in whom every human faculty has been tainted by sin, know how to do good by your children, how much more? The answer, infinitely more. Infinitely more. God is an infinitely good father. He delights in giving good gifts to his children, James 1.17. He compares a human earthly father who, though fallen and sinful, still desires to bless his children to himself, the divine, heavenly, perfect, sinless father. And so Jesus makes the argument here. He says, no no decent father, if his son or his daughter comes to him and asks him for bread, would say, here's a rock. Now, here's what you need to know. Uh... Jesus's, the lay of the land in and around where Jesus lived and where he ministered was oftentimes surrounded by bodies of water. It was a coastal region. And what you get when water tumbles rock are small, flat, smooth surface rocks. Looked a whole lot like the small bread cakes that would have been made in Jesus's day. Obviously, we know, like, a rock doesn't look like a piece of wonder bread. Well, bread didn't look like wonder bread in Jesus' day, okay? That smooth stone would have looked or would have resembled, especially to a small child, a lot like the piece of bread. And when Jesus says fish, we oftentimes uh, think of, you know, a, a bass or, you know, a catfish or whatever floats your boat. But what Jesus probably has in mind here is a particular type of fish that was prevalent in his day, which looked a whole lot more like an eel than did a fish, so it could have very easily been mistaken by a small child, okay? And so Jesus says, no good father, if his son or his daughter comes to him and asks him for bread, is going to give that child a stone instead. No good father is going to do that. Or, or if that child comes, that son or daughter comes and says, Daddy, Daddy, will you please give me some fish? I'm hungry. Is going to say, here, here's a serpent which is poisonous. No good father would do that. No decent father is going to do that to his son or to his daughter. And so Jesus is arguing here, if an earthly father, with his sinful, evil nature, delights to do right, especially materially, to his children, then it makes sense that the righteous heavenly father will much more reward his children spiritually for their persistence in asking, Daddy, Daddy, will you give me a brokenheartedness over my sin? Daddy, daddy, make me a peacemaker. Daddy, help me with the anxiety and the worry that at times I seem riddled with. Please, dad. Let me note a few things on your outline here. A, if you're taking notes, I would tell you this. If you haven't written a single note yet, write these few things down. Sometimes, sometimes it seems Let me underscore the word seems, as if God gives us a stone instead of bread. Sometimes it seems as though God gives us a stone instead of bread. But in his wisdom, God is actually working through our circumstances to give us something far better than we ever requested. I think about Paul here, by the way. Paul Paul writes, uh, three times I pleaded, three times I begged. There's persistence there, right? I mean, there's asking. There's seeking, there's knocking. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that he would remove or take away the thorn from my flesh. In other words, the thorn seems like a stone. It's not comfortable. It hurts. I don't want it. Take it away. But it was actually bread. When Paul realized this, he responded, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Oh, Well, knowing that it's bread, it only seemed like a stone, but it's really bread, then I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest on me. I'll be content then in persecutions and in weaknesses and insults and hardships and calamities, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It only seemed like a stone, but it was really bread. Not everything that hurts is a stone, friends. Not everything that's difficult is a stone, friends. Sometimes it may seem as if God gives us a stone instead of bread, but it only seems that way. Rest assured that's never the case. An unknown unknown author expressed it this way I asked God for health that I may do greater things. He gave me infirmity that I may do greater things. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. He made me weak that I might learn to obey him. I asked for riches that I might be happy. He gave me poverty so that I might be wise. I asked for power and the praise of men. I was given weakness to see my need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. You see, in spite of myself, in spite of my prayers, despite the fact that they were not answered in the way that I prayed them, I am among all men most richly blessed. Yes, God, yes, God always gives what is best. Catch that, friends. Just because it's hard and difficult doesn't mean it's a stone. Secondly, God knows how to give far better than you or I know how to ask. God knows how to give far better than you or I know how to ask. Charles Spurgeon once said, our Heavenly Father will always correct our prayer, speaking about believers here, will correct our prayer and give us not what we ignorantly seek, but what we really need. You see, our prayers go to heaven in a quote revised version. It would be a terrible thing if God always gave us what we asked for. You see, our heavenly Father, He Himself knows how to give far better than we know how to receive. Think about what Paul wrote. Okay, this isn't some kind of like flashpan theology, by the way. That our prayers go to heaven in a revised version. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter eight? Says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, right? For we do not always know what we ought to pray or know how to pray for what we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches the heart and knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even when I don't pray in accordance with the will of God, God in his goodness and his grace and his mercy reinterprets those prayers by way of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's the great confidence we have in prayer We may be sure that no good thing will be withheld from from us, God's children. We may also be sure that God loves us all too well to give us anything that would hurt us. Which leads to my final point this morning for taking notes is this. When God says no, it's because what he wants to give is better. When God says no, it's because what he wants to give is better. You see, as sinful and flawed as we are, human fathers, because of the fall, we still desire to help and to bless and to give good gifts to our children. You think about it for a second. If your son or your daughter or my son or my daughter in, in ignorance comes and asks for a stone or a snake, would we give it to them? No. No, we wouldn't. Would it alter your decision if they begged for it? No. What if they pleaded, daddy, 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 I can't live without the snake? Would that change your mind? No. No. No, it wouldn't change your mind, because you, being good, know how to give good gifts to your children. Even if our children came to us begging and pleading, the answer is still, no. You see, children oftentimes ask for foolish things, and let me remind you that some of us never grow out of that. Children oftentimes ask for foolish things. Children would try to sustain themselves with sugar if we let them. Children would play with dangerous objects and they would play in dangerous places if we let them. They would run with scissors, provoke a wasp, play with fire, climb too high, get too close and stay too late if we let them. And again, some of us don't grow out of that. Spiritual immaturity. We beg and plead for things oftentimes that seem like bread. But God knows they're really poisonous snakes. And so he says no. And he gives what is better instead. He gives what is better instead. You know, the American theologian Garth Brooks, tongue-in-cheek, by the way, reminds us that some of God's greatest gifts are what? Okay, that needs some qualifying. It actually needs a whole lot of qualifying. There's probably a whole sermon there. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Let me, let me qualify or modify. Some of God's greatest gifts are prayers that are unanswered in the way that we pray them. Okay? Because He knows what is better. He knows what is better. Let me close with this thought, friends. Close your Bible and just give me your ears. How can we know? How can we be assured? that God cares for us so deeply and will only give us what is best for us? How, How can we be assured of that? Well, go with me to a hill outside of Jerusalem, not far from the Damascus Gate, and look closely there at men who are dying on a bloody Roman cross. Study that awful scene very closely. Listen to the jeering crowd. Ponder, ponder. The words spoken by the man hanging in the middle. And there, you will have your answer. How do we know? How do we know that God cares for us so deeply that he will only give us what is best for us? Well, the answer is at the cross. The answer is at the cross, friends. You see, the death of Jesus is the foundation and the sure sign that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. That's why we close our prayers in Jesus' name. Right? Right? Paul reminds us, lest you need a verse to stick with this, Paul reminds us that he, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him give us graciously all good things? And so, friends, let me ask you, are you asking? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? You see, prayer is the key that unlocks the treasure of all of God's promises, and they're all yes and amen in Jesus.